you forgot. Oh, I forgot you're gonna do this bit. Michael, what is it, Michael? What movie were we supposed to watch? We were supposed to watch the Royal Tenenbaum. No, no. What did you watch, Michael? I watched the Ratatatalogs. Oh God! The series of monologues by the jam band Ratatat. Rat. That's got to be your worst one. Every time, really bad it's like one. Worse. Really bad. Every time it's worse. I. It's like it's so good. I guess. Also, the sound of me being anxious about having not watched the right thing is turning into just a general strain. Like just generally <laughs> straining my voice in no particular. I love it. I love it though. I, I think, think I want that character back. I just watched The Northman. A lot of grunting. A lot of grunting in that film. It's <laughs> way it rubbed off on me. Yeah, no, no, I get it. I want you to do an episode entirely in that voice and just lose our entire audience. <laughs> yeah. You know what's surprising about the Ratatatalogs? Yeah. <laughs> All pro Venezuelan independence. That's their very, that's their thing. Is that something about? I don't even think it applies geopolitically. No. They're very into it. That's what all the monologues are about. That's what all the monologues are I'm just are. riffing, dude. I got nothing. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Welcome, <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey. If you uh, grokked that signature bit, then you already know what it is. But uh, in case you didn't, Abe, why don't you tell them? What are, what are we doing here? We're Andersons. That's right. The both of us. Where we talk about, in this case today, Wes Anderson and, to you know, in a month, P.T. Anderson's films, because they both share a last name. Hey. And we talk about what? It might amount to more than that someday. We'll see. Someday. We'll find the yeah. connection. <laughs> well, there's some connections. They're both our tours. We're interested in, in yeah, decade. fruitful deep dives on both of them. Obviously, like we wouldn't we wouldn't go deep on them if we didn't think they could bear some fruit. But yeah, that's right. He described mm -hmm. it. He's Abe Epperson. I'm Michael Swain. I'm, and it's Anderson's. Hey, welcome. welcome. Welcome, officially, for the fifth time. So, here on this show, it has a format such that we examine these films through the lens of three spectra. Uh, mm -hmm. If you imagine a prism, and it's mm -hmm. just the lights shooting out every which way, but particularly three. One labeled diegesis in the manner of a political cartoon. One labeled pedagogy, and one labeled howdy do that. So, let's get on into it. Royal Tannenbaums, yeah. let's start with Diegesis, which is where we go over the events of the film, uh, what actually, you know, the mm, the manifestations that comprise the sensory experience, and, yes. uh, and uh, we'll be interjecting all throughout with our wry observations and, you know, that good, that good honey that oozes out from in between the mm -hmm. honeycomb of us mm -hmm. discussing film, which is the reason that you're presumably here. So, uh, Abe. Huh? Yeah. I got it. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums. I've been pretty excited to get to this point in the podcast, I got to say, friend. Yeah. I will say as an opener, this is probably, probably, I haven't seen Fantastic Mr. Fox and some of the new ones. I haven't seen French But Dispatch. this is, this is so far my favorite Wes Anderson. I think it's his best. Um, it's like, it's like Franny and Zoe. Have you read that Salinger book? No, but I'm aware that it's a yeah, it's like a family. Yep. Yeah, it's like a family of many talents, and there's uh uh, and it reminds me also 
that uh, of Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, both of which, when I was doing research for this podcast, I realized that uh, Wes Anderson was like, yeah, no, those are the references. There's even a character in Franny and Zoe called Tenenbaum. So that's cool. And in fact, that's- he famously said many times that his only real interest was, you know, Amberson, Anderson. So he, he'll do name <laughs> so, shit. He'll do pun he'll do shit. Name shit. He'll do name shit. Who are shit? we to yeah. be above it? Uh, but that's kind of the stylistic. It is absolutely. That's... It's a classic arch. If you're familiar in the theater world, Pinter would be an analog. It is a uh, a family of many talents that cannot cohese and de- is deeply dysfunctional yes. on display for your amusement and catharsis. And mm-hmm. uh, I saw this movie right when it came out in theaters. I remember it making a phenomenal psychic impact on me such that I didn't watch it again for at least 15 years. And I still felt that I could recall it almost verbatim. That's like it was seared into my brain in a way where I didn't need to watch it again. And um, lo and behold, this is my second viewing of Royal Tenenbaums, and I basically remembered everything about it. I don't know what the special alchemy of this movie is. And I'm someone who does have a pretty prodigious memory, but not for all movies. Like, after 15 years, details usually slip my mind. And Royal Tenenbaums, for some reason, gripped me scene by scene. I remember it. Like, I I could do diegesis off the top of my head. And I don't know... If that makes it my favorite, but it's it means something. It resonates with me at like a genetic level. I know you're like a structuralist. I know you. Like I am. Yeah. I know you. And it's interesting to me that you, you didn't, it still affected you that much. And I know that you are affected by other movies that have like structural faux pas, I guess I would say. Or I don't play know with structure or trans- they play with structure to or transcend they, structure. And this movie is kind of in a way formless. I mean, it does have a very, and we'll start with it. Uh, like it has an insert. The movie begins with an insert of book called the Royal Tenenbaums uh, written by uh, Royal Tenenbaum, who's played by Gene Hackman. Alec Baldwin narrates the film and it's broken up by chapters. So there is a form, but like if you look at the story arc, it's like it's kind of like a full metal jacket. You know, it's like one hour of two. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like two things. Like full metal jacket is like one hour of boot camp, 45 minutes of war. This movie is like one hour of family, maybe a half hour of Margot. Margot and and then like 15 minutes of family again. again. And that's atypical. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just used to some things in Hollywood and he's says, I don't care, which is kind of, you know, much respect. Actually, I have several very cogent, crystallized, mind blowing thoughts on that subject, but I'm going to save them for pedagogy. Yeah, let's Uh, go through. But I do like that the even the title itself lets you know what this is. Royal Tannenbaums, right? Like they have an air of fanciness, but also his name is Royal. So he it's like it's self-centered. It's he him centered the whole, you know, Mm -hmm. he's Mm -hmm. run his life through him first. The patriarch. It's well, it's a classically structured family where it all swirls around the patriarch. And in this case, the patriarch's dysfunctional and that all trickles downhill. Mm. So I also want to point out a movie that. So, for example, uh, Bottle Rockets was like two lovelorn idiots pull off a heist, right? Correct. Struggle to pull off a heist. That's high concept or high ish. Um, high would be like a monkey and an idiot pull off a heist. But um, <laughs> I just think it's notable how low concept Royal Tenenbaums is. We really feel like Wes Anderson has the confidence to drill down and do what he knows he does best. This is him in full confidence, I feel like. And I for the first time. 
And uh, I, I just note that the log line for this on Amazon is a man and his wife had three children, Chaz, Margo and Richie, and then they separated. Chaz bought real estate. Margo was a playwright and Richie was a junior champion tennis player. I love that that synopsis tells you nothing about nothing what about this movie, movie is yeah. about or It has like. nothing to do with affairs and right. dysfunction and grief. Yeah, It's no. really hard to synopsize, um, but in a way that I think just shows you that Wes Anderson is like, no, 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 I'm doing my thing now. So it starts yeah. with someone checking the book, The Royal Tannenbaums, out of a library, notably, and some green stage curtains, and we get a title card that says, Prologue! And uh, as Abe alluded to, Baldwin is narrating. Uh, Wes, as we've noted, is uh, Tarantino-esque in that he loves to score his films with actual tracks. So Hey Jude by the Beatles kicks in. I think, uh, you know, that's public domain, so that was probably cheap and easy to get. I kid. <laughs> I don't think it's... <laughs> then there's a pretty banging montage set to Hey Jude. Um, yeah. That really Lord of the Rings style gives us like... I think a 15 minute montage. I noted when the montage actually technically ended was 15 minutes in. And I put in all caps, discuss this with Abe. Yeah. He'll have thoughts. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was ready, armed and ready, sir. All right. Let me, yeah. let me synopsize the Let's montage synopsize. and then get thoughts on the fact that it starts with a 15 minute montage. But Baldwin narrates and talks about how, uh, what we, what Amazon said, they had three children and separated. There's these two characters, Royal and Ethelene. It has shots of books, checks, ledgers, chalkboards, all kinds of ways that information is displayed and processed. And all these shots are very Wes Anderson, meaning they're postcardy, they're straight on, they're square, they're grids. Um, we find out about each of the kids. Everything is cute and quirky and twee. Um, remind very reminiscent of the montage of extracurricular activities from Rushmore that we've discussed in the past. Very much so. Yeah. So there's more wacky chirons and activities that the kids do, but they excel, right? That's the thing. They excel at everything. Mm. Um, and they, they excel and yet their family life is fucked up. I, of course it'll come up multiple times, but I love his dad, uh, shot Chaz in the hand with a BB gun when they were kids for no reason, just like for fun. When uh, he yeah, goes, what becomes do you, contentious? What are you yeah, doing? Like, You're on my team. Ha ha ha. There are no teams and shoots his son, mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. which is, uh, a technique, it's a very resonant line, right? There are no teams. That evinces yes. his whole worldview and function. Amazing to me that Noah Baumbach, Wes Anderson's primary like creative partner, would go on to do The Squid and the Whale, which starts with the line, it's you and me versus mom and dad, which is kind of the same trick or technique. But anyway, I, so. I digress. Um, they all ex excel in various things, like we said. Margo's a playwright. Richie's an athlete and a collector and a ch and a champion tennis player. And Chaz is a businessman. And they're all prodigies. But then, uh, as the narrator says, all memory of their successes has been erased by two decades of betrayal, failure, and disaster. And uh, then we meet our cast of characters. Well, it goes on and on. And it gets mm -hmm. all the way up to the inciting incident which is Henry, played by Danny Glover, approaches Ethelene and says, I would like to marry you. Will you marry me? Pagoda, mm -hmm. the family's, I guess, like live-in server, <clears throat> overhears this, tells Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman vows to get his family back. Boom. End of montage. Movie actually enters real-time scene work. So... Yeah. Does that bother you? Does it offend you that the montage never stops? Yeah, no, I mean, here's the thing. 
I think it's actually really well. It's like it plays into the storybook aspect of it, right? It's narrated uh, and it's doing the background. So it's all information that I think that Wes Anderson is really at his best at because like he is really good with superfluous details. Like he chooses details to Pepper's world with like uh, amazingly stylized choices Chaz bread you know, dalmatian it's, like, it's not mice. just a yeah. hobby it's a ham radio drums and a car collection you know like there's always something very specific it's like um i also wanted to point out that it's doing a lot of narrative work for example we see almost one of the things that i would actually fault this film for a little bit is it becomes a little redundant in the announcement of like what the the flaws and the problems are because we see exactly very clearly what's going on in this montage because you reference the um the fissure between shaz and royal in terms of like the bb gun incident we also see royal watch margo's plays mm. and criticizes the play calling it a bunch of kids dressed as animals didn't seem believable and, to me right so there's two children that he, and we learn that margo's also adopted but he like doesn't really pay attention to or he criticizes and he's very negative to their interests. Whereas he takes Richie uh, out to play craps and dog exactly. fights and shit. And yeah. Richie loves him, which becomes the main through line of the film, right? Until we really hit our act three, nothing really changes between everyone. Um, so it's like actually... As far as I'm concerned, this montage is excellent because it like lets you know everything that like an act one should let you know. In fact, the rest of act one, we're kind of just twiddling our thumbs because what other work do we have to do other than right. just like, I mean, like we have the setup of the drama. Uh, there's, you know, obviously more characters to be introduced and seeing what, you know, Bill Murray as Raleigh and, you know, Henry uh, played by Danny Glover or like what they're doing. Um, but ultimately it's really just about the family. Right. And yeah. I Plus, think it's pretty expertly done. The one additional honorary family member who's shuffled in there, Owen Wilson as Eli Cash, who yes. is the friend, uh, Richie's best friend who lives across the street. Um, and of course, in this montage has the fabulous line at his novel reading. As we all know, Custer died at Little Bighorn, but what this book presupposes is maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't. <laughs> Which is great because also as a metaphor, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, He's rewriting fictional history, right? He's rewriting right. history, which is what he wishes. He wishes to be a Tenenbaum. He wishes um, he was a Tenenbaum. He wishes he... And that's why he ultimately hooks up with Margo. It's a way that in some alternate yeah. universe, I'm almost a Tenenbaum. Yeah. yeah. Um, incidentally, I just want to point out, no one notices that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, a.k.a. Margo, has smoked for 22 years, which is patently impossible. That's just impossible. It's just, you smell it. It can't be. You even see her no tactic way. at one point where she's like, she's caught, like someone knocks on the door. Her husband rolling. Reclusive, Raleigh, yeah. yeah. When she's reclusive in the bathroom. And she just like sprays some perfume and turns on a fan. Like that'll work. No way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that takes us into chapter one. Uh, it is broken into eight chapters in chapter one. Mm -hmm. We continue to get to know people for the most part. As Abe said, it has a non-traditional structure in the sense that things don't change. Things do change, but the relationships do not yes. change and the status hierarchy barely changes. Um, but the forward motion of the plot is essentially that one by one, do everyone's moving back to the family home. So first Royal, then 
uh, Chaz because his wife died in a plane crash and he's become paranoid about his and his two children's, his two sons' safety. So he has, he's Mm -hmm. like freaking out, basically having a nervous breakdown and he moves the family in home for a while. Then Margot, Gwyneth Paltrow overhears this and is like, says, why are they allowed to do that? (laughs) I'm not, well, I'm moving home too. And we find out she's unhappy with her marriage and she just wants a break and some, Oh wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, time. And then uh, last but not least, Richie telegrams a letter to Eli saying, by the way, incidentally, I think I'm in love with Margot. And after <laughs> dropping that bombshell on you very nonchalantly, also hears everyone's moving home because dad is sick. So I'm going to move home. Um, oh, and I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. The key point being the royal scheme to get the family back together is to print, pretend to be sick. So Royal Acosta Ethelene on <laughs> yes. the street. And says, uh, you know, Eth, I'm dying. That's a great scene. I'm dying. I'm dying, Ethel. <laughs> she goes, yeah. she, man, uh, Angelica Houston, just. It, she, yeah. She's so good. Fully <laughs> goes from, I hate your guts to crying because you're dying. And then he mm-hmm. goes, well, I'm not really dying. <laughs> and she immediately turns very realistically, very grounded yeah. performance into no. you bastard. How could you do that? Hitting yeah. him. And then he goes, cause I am dying. I am. I was just I saying I wasn't dying. He like said, he has to like convince himself yeah. that she returns. Yeah. He goes, so are you dying or are you dying? Yeah, I'm and dying. He, yeah, he nods. Uh, I want to talk about the shot actually, mm-hmm. uh, because this is, I don't know how many minutes in, 25 minutes in or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and he, it stops in uh proscenium shot like normal Wes Anderson. No shots in Wes Anderson films are not flat, wide, kind of this 35 millimeter or wider lens. You know, yeah. like there's very few. Sometimes he has those like pump zooms and stuff like that. But like ultimately, they're always something that is always a balanced frame, right? And for the first time in the movie, this shot becomes unbalanced. It starts off as balanced. It's a shot of Royal who is stopped on the on the right side of the street or the right side of frame. Mm-hmm. And there's a tree on the left side. And then, but when Ethel returns... She doesn't do a typical thing that Wes Anderson always will do, which is that she would return to center, therefore introducing a new element to the subject of the the painting. But ultimately, uh, it's balanced, right? But that's not what he does here. He returns Ethel to landing off center. And then it's such a huge story beat. Mm. I assume that that's why he did that. To me, it's like breaking the 180 line for Anderson. He like He's wants knocked her off center, off He wants you to not get take out taken out of the picture. He doesn't want you to feel like you're uh you, he doesn't want you to feel like you're exactly like, oh, this is not a Wes Anderson film. But he wants you to subconsciously think this feels like it's not a frame that I'm used to in this movie. Uh, even though it has all the hallmarks of one, it's still got parallel horizontal lines. It's still got flat walls, beige, muted color palettes. Um, so it's just like a nice little touch that he does that I think that you said you referenced his confidence uh, earlier. I really think that he's starting to do that. And this is one of the reasons I think that like this is the yeah. receipt. And his it's beiges and feels- pinks and his blues are all on display. His color palette is be- is like fully it's definitely honed it's yeah but rushmore was pretty like pretty good pretty designed yeah this is 
really designed because everything comes from a specifically retro 70s style. Like all of the clothes and all of the walls are specifically from the 70s. And everyone wears this, like the children, younger versions of the uh, trio when they get older. They oh, all of become, the core trio of the yeah. kids. They all wear the same clothes, right? right. And you know, they're frozen like, yeah, in time the, as the family. Everybody's sort of frozen in time. Everyone wears the same clothes always, and it's like it's because it wants to remind you uh, with the style that there's they're all stuck, you know, mm. which is probably pedagogy. But like anyway, like I think that that's what when we say confidence in execution, I think that that's what it means. He's he's really he's he's starting to feel confident to move away from his standard practices. So chapter two also starts to introduce, um, but as you said, structurally, we just introduce it, then we don't get back to it until the second half of the movie when it's this plot's mm-hmm. time to shine. But it just introduces that Richie's in love with Margot, his adoptive sister, and it has that fucking just magical i truly i really think it's a pinnacle cinematic moment like if i were doing a reel of some of the greatest film moments of all time it would be in there and it's margo picking him up at the airport set to nico's these days and it is a classic wes anderson technique so if you're playing the drinking the anderson's drinking game take a shot now (laughs) it ramps to slow-mo in the middle of the shot Mm. but what i noticed this time is there's also a scrupulous control of lighting. This is the first time, like the first shot or first set of shots, at least in the entire film so far, where we have seen rich, full yellow, golden sunlight on someone. And of course it's on Margot's face. And then it immediately becomes a little more subdued and pastel and gloomy again. Like, I love the idea that he used and it's I love the idea that it's an analogous sequence to the Dreamweaver shot from fucking Wayne's World. Yeah. And yeah, he's exactly. just taking it seriously. It's literally a Looney Tunes like looking at someone and going, wow, wow, wow. But wow, like wow. he nails yeah. it, dude. It feels like love. It's, I to uh, me. Yeah. And it's got that, and it's definitely got a chic of its like of its own. Like uh, you referenced you what's the name of what'd you say the artist was? Nico. I thought it was like Okay, I thought it was like Bell and Sebastian. I don't know. It's like, but it's basically that. Right? It is. It's like they sound similar. Formative yeah. in early two thousands indie rock and indie folk music. Yeah. Uh, it might as well be the Shins in some cases with the soundtrack. But yeah, everyone's now kind of back under the same roof for the first time in seventeen years. They say. Uh, yep. Which brings us to chapter three. Uh, Before we go to chapter yes. three, I do want to mention because we're Please going through do. it real quick, which I I really. By the way, uh, side I, note, I think this is a good. Not that we have to do this every time, but um, for this at least, it's working out because we always struggle with when to trade off. But like, I'm having a. I, I think we should just tango and cash it. Where I I do the actual meat of the diegesis, and you're you're sniping in with these DPT style color color color. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, No, 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 no. Uh, the, what I want to mention is like a typical trick that he does. And this time it's now with editing. It's not the camera. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of chapter two, Chaz is distraught with like, uh, the kind, the kind of, um, lack of safety that he has in his own home. So he like, he, he got locked out of his apartment, so he moves himself and his kids back into the Tenenbaum home. Uh, and in the scene, they're doing Bridge Club, Ethelene and Henry, when he arrives, mm-hmm. which is a 
like, so this is the tactic I want to talk about. It's more of a story tactic. Anderson, he loves in his films to throw a bunch of illuminating and eccentric details like about his characters everywhere, right? In this case, it's uh, really successful, I think, because the film reads as a book. So those long lists actually work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's much like in Rushmore where we see like Max's litany of extracurriculars, right? Um, And here we hear about a hundred small little details about each character and most of them don't really come back. But sometimes you snot, you kind of like smile as a viewer because you notice, ah, Royal did mention bridge club is one of the random things that ethylene does. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of game of whack-a-mole with the details that come up later. I think it's kind of key to like Anderson's stories feeling like they're cohesive and not just random details that are incidental to plot. It's kind of a nice trick. So I just, I thought that that's a thing, especially Anderson like mm-hmm. a, a vibe that Anderson alone does in his uh, in his work. Yeah. Mm. All right. That brings us to chapter three. Yeah, let's go. Um, Which is. Oh, no. My scroll went crazy and pulled me to the top of the chapter three. Oh, it starts with how. So what do you got? I got a pretty bad case of cancer. <laughs> pretty bad. Yeah. There is very. Yeah. So I, I also want to just shine a light on. Sentence to sentence, there's some gold in in here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let me get to the point. The three of you and your mother are all I've got, says Royal, and I love you more than anything. Then Chaz Ben Stiller says, ho, 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 (laughs) which is also just great. (laughs) Just a skeptical laugh of when is your father says, I love you. Ho, ho, ho. Yes, Ben Stiller is phenomenal in this as well. Uh, He might have he has a few performances that i'm like he might be the best one he might be the standout in the movie at least on this viewing for me yeah so as in order to awkwardly have something to do right let's try this we're gonna try a family outing together so they decide to go to the cemetery to visit royal's mother's grave and uh to which margo says you know rachel's out there too and he says who and Chaz says my dead wife and he says well we'll have to swing by her grave too <laughs> yeah, I'll swing by her grave. Like, just... <laughs> <laughs> so good um it's so good margo and eli end up in the car on the way to the funeral uh eli says to margo you know oh no 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 they're just driving around but regardless eli says to margo mm-hmm. uh you know richie sent me a letter saying he's in love with you but, quote, don't repeat that, by the way, to Richie. It was told to me in confidence. So Right, which, which is, is not like, be that's to. not going to hold. Come on. No. Yeah. With these people? No. Yeah. Um, then uh, Henry and Ethel have a cute scene at an archaeological dig site where she admits she Henry hasn't slept with a man in 18 years and they kiss. And it basically establishes to us, the audience, that they're a good couple that we're rooting There's for. There's real love. And we it's want not- them to be together. Yeah. Because I would say that Wes Anderson does from time to time suffer from, with all his charm, uh, it's kind of distant. It, it forms a distance if it's if you don't really have the scene work. When you do everything in montage and just say people are the sum of all of their interests and things they do and uh, you have clothes they wear, it's like it becomes kind of soulless. So it's I'm glad that he recognized very early oh, there's real love here and witness it. You have two great actors, yeah. you know, and let's just let them out. So, so it's cool. the lone holdout is Chaz, who extra hates his dad and won't mm-hmm. let the grandkids, Ari and Uzi, see Hackman, Gene Hackman. So 
uh, Royal's new plan is to basically stalk them and accost them when they're at the playground and their father's not around. And uh, they end up having a little conversation through a chain leak fence that I like very much. Uh, he says, I'm very sorry for your loss. Your mother was a terribly attractive woman. Um, mm-hmm. Then he says, I'm also sorry we haven't gotten to know each other. I don't get ev- ar- invited around very much. Um, what do you think about that, by the way? Uh, you don't have to say anything. I guess it's just kind of a fuck you to the old man, I guess. How's your dad anyway? And they go, fine. And he goes, you think so, huh? <laughs> it's just a lot of good negging. Very... I can see why I can see the Salinger inspiration for sure. Um, yeah, a lot for of sure. good uh, uh, people slow, subtly negging each other. Then mm. we cut to the cemetery visiting Grandma's grave, and lo and behold, he convinced Ari and Uzi to beg Chaz to let them go to the point that Richie begrudgingly came along. So the family's mm. together. Um, Royal splits the roses he bought between his <laughs> mom's grave and Rachel's grave. Um, Says to Richie, what do you think of this big old black buck moving in on your mom there? And he goes, yeah. what? <laughs> like, what are you, what the fuck are yeah, you? Yeah, I love Luke Wilson's can, like, what the fuck are you talking about? I can't believe this. you just said that. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. Uzi asks Margot how she lost her finger. She tells she a little cutaway, almost Family Guy-esque cutaway yeah. of like, yeah, or Coen Brothers-esque, like- of her real dad, who's Amish, accidentally chopping her finger back on. Um, so again, it's the family kind of swirling around trying to form connections and failing so far. Right. Um, they stop. Yeah. We also see the flashback yeah. when Richie had his breakdown and it, we learned that it was because Mario got married to Raleigh. Bill Murray. Right. Yeah. Bill Murray. And is like the day before. And I have to say Luke Wilson's really good performance. Uh, he's so good at doing the specifically the like, apathy like he's really good at apathy he's done it a few Flat times you know depression yeah, yeah like idiot uh idiocracy he did it mm-hmm. uh like even the even like the um like old school and stuff like that he's just like when he says like ah fuck it you know yeah. it's just really good to watch and this one is probably the best because uh he just like sits down <laughs> yeah. in the middle of a tennis match and you just like just sighs and it's just like really good uh yeah I, I've been there, man. I totally know what you mean. Meanwhile, Royal is continually apologizing and making noises like he wants to be a good guy now. Um, you know, he says I kind of disappeared after that. To which right. Richie says, Yeah, but I understand, I understand you're not good with disappointment, which is very interesting and comports with what we saw their child childhood right like richie cuts it mm-hmm. more slack than everyone else but i also yeah. think well i guess i'll save pedagogy because it is but um they show the bb and chaz's hands still royal yeah. tries to get on chaz's good side and chaz is like why did you shoot me like i never i still hold that against you essentially and he goes hey you sued me twice and had me disbarred and we flash back to that which is one of my favorite moments in the whole thing is uh, young Chaz says to a lawyer, he also stole bonds out of my safe deposit box when I was 14 and we slow pan over to Royal and Royal just goes, yeah. <laughs> and we cut away. He's like, into it. Yeah. like, like, yeah, like what him. are you going to do? But it's yeah. like, he's about to proffer an excuse. It's just an incredible confluence of editing and performance. That reminded me of I uh, like nothing as much as honestly like uh, Big Lebowski. It felt like the scene with Lebowski in the office, 
Uh, I just love those little mannerisms. And if you if you know our deep dives, you know that's high praise. Um, we get more of Richie and Margo together. Margo says, by the way, Eli told me about your letter. <laughs> and Richie says, you dropped your cigarettes. And she says, I don't smoke. And he says, they yeah. just fell out of your pocket, though. Yeah. yeah. Another good moment. Another, Another good, mo- good moment. Just great, straightforward. I do, uh, just backing it up a little bit, I, I do like... Uh, uh, we get Royal saying, come on, let's shag ass <laughs> to exit the scene previous. Oh, uh, <laughs> shall we split? Yes, sir. Don't call me, sir. Call me Mr. Tenenbaum. I'm just kidding. Call me Pappy. Come on. Call me let's Pappy. shag ass. <laughs> let's shag ass. That's also very Lebowski to me. <laughs> it's very Lebowski. Yeah. And, it, I, and it's referenced later in the movie when uh, Ethel is like, I like your little way with words. You know, yeah. she call, he, he calls a her very true blue. 70s way yeah. of speaking. Yeah. He's got a really, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. Sometimes um, problematic and used for mm-hmm. ill effect, as we'll find. So, uh, chapter four? Not quite yet, because Richie uh, confronts Eli about spilling the beans to Margot, oh, and they right. discuss yeah. it under his giant paintings of natives on ATVs and battle masks. <laughs> and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what did you say? Nothing. When? Right now? I'm sorry. Don't listen to me. I'm on mescaline. I'm pretty spaced out. You're on mescaline? Mm-hmm. Very much so, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now it's chapter four. Now it's chapter four. Um, well, actually, gets I do like out of his hotel. the stinger joke at the end of chapter three, because Royal has said it so many times. He goes, uh, you know, you can't be in love with her. You're, she's your sister. Adopted, <laughs> which is Adopted. what Royal has said like 10 times already. Yeah. yeah right, chapter right. four, Royal's tr- struggling to get his stuff back from the hotel that he's been living at for 22 years and just been evicted mm-hmm. from. Uh, and he calls Richie and asks him to plead with the rest of the family to let him move there. So basically he's been using his fake cancer to get to, to like even get his foot in the door and see them. Now he wants mm-hmm. to live there full time in a, in the spare room. And Richie right. says yes. Cause Richie's the one that likes him. Right. That enables and Chaz him. hates that and calls him a papa's boy. That's right. <clears throat> But reveal he's already there. <laughs> he reveals he's already, he goes, uh, yeah, well, he's already up there in the attic there, yeah. which I just got to say at this point, oh God, it's so hard. No, I'll save it for pedagogy. Fuck me. Yeah, yeah, let's just go. Okay, just go. okay. We got we to gotta move, guys. We got to move. We got to move. Um, There's eight of these. <laughs> I guess you can wake him up and throw him out if mom says it's okay, blah, blah, blah. Guilts him into letting him stay. So he's staying under the right. auspices of fake cancer. Chaz comes up, essentially accuses him of faking and says, even if you aren't faking, I don't care. Get out. He tries to get at like stand. He pretends to collapse. He puts a wooden spoon in his own mouth in case he has a fake seizure. Um, but Chaz, it's all fake. Chaz reveals himself by going, are you OK? And he goes, fuck, do you care? <laughs> he gets his elevator man, who's his buddy from the hotel, to pretend to be a doctor and say, oh, he can't be moved. He's too sick. So, uh, you know, he gets his way. He lies. Lying works. That's the big resonant, I think, theme through line of the film. Mm-hmm. Lying works. Mm-hmm. He gets his way. Um, he eats a bunch of cheeseburgers in bed. He has a grand old time. And uh, mm-hmm. Henry spots him eating cheeseburgers in bed, which is important later. Richie camps out in a tent because Royal's in his room. Chaz rips the flaps open angrily to accuse him and says, look like you and dad are back together again, huh? <laughs> and, uh, and Richie's just like, I love you. And he says, <laughs> I stop love that, saying that. 
Chess, I don't want to hurt you. You're my brother. I love you. Stop saying Stop that. Stop saying that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I love that he, uh, when we get back in the morning mm -hmm. uh, or like the next morning, Eli is escaping from Margot's room. Right? right. And then and that's where Royal, who is smoking, sees Owen Wilson do this. And he says, I know you asshole. <laughs> my favorite performance is by Owen Wilson, who's probably high on mescaline. He just, waves he just reaches out at him. As if to wave, but not actually waving. Just point, yeah, it's like just, moving his hand it's towards him. It's not a point. It's yeah. not a wave. It's like a high, you're going for a high five, but he's also like, yeah, I see you, man. I feel your vibes. Yeah. Uh, it, it just cuts away. It's like a nonsensical <laughs> reaction that shows, hey, here's someone who's high, but it's really charming. Then Bill Murray comes to visit Margot to ask what is the future of their marriage, and they have right. another incredible intimate performance moment. Are you ever coming home? Maybe not. You're joking. No. Well, I want to die. <laughs> and he immediately and he eats fumbles. a cookie. <laughs> he fumbles with this cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing someone else? Which I can't even begin to think about knowing how to consider answering he, that question. <laughs> later, he does the literal same beat with the cigarette. He like doesn't know how to use the cigarette. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like ah, Bill Murray really knows what he's doing. Well, I want to die. <laughs> Royal accuses Margot of cheating on Raleigh with Eli. Right. And says, that's just not right, damn it. You used to be a genius. And she says, no, I didn't. And he Stay says, anyway, it. that's what they used to say, which really gave me vibes of him talking about Leo DiCaprio's farmer hands in The Quick and the Dead. Just just amazing <laughs> hackman nagging you. Like, yeah. God, he's so good at cutting remarks. I mean, it's he had this ability in a certain age of just being Papa, just the guy that we want yeah. to impress. Yeah. For no reason. Just because he looks that way. I looks guess. and sounds. It's the voice, too. There's something about his voice. It's the voice. He, and he, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then Raleigh confides in Richie on the roof that he believes Margot's cheating with someone. Team up. Says, will you advise me? I don't. I don't. And then um, <laughs> Richie goes, well, sure. I mean, I don't know. What do you want to do? You want to find the guy? You want to get him? And he goes, well, no. And then Richie punches <laughs> through the glass. Yeah. Because he's, he's in love clearly, with Margot. Yeah. yeah, and clearly has like issues with that. Yeah. Um, and then we get like probably the most delightful montage in the whole thing, which is the newly motivated to get like Chad's kids to be more reckless. Yeah. Royal starts doing reckless shit with them, like go karts, riding horses, running streetlights, throwing water balloons, stealing stuff, shoplifting, you know, classic, milk. yeah, classic kid stuff that we all did as kids. on dog <laughs> fights. Um, yeah. And now, of course, all set to the most punk rock music possible. Paul Simon going dee dee and happiness, Julian. sunshine and rainbow stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very uh, good, like anti use of a soundtrack. Um, mm -hmm. Royal's amused by the board game closet and finds his misplaced Havelina head. Oh, I'm not even going to worry about tracking that, but maybe Who we'll cares? talk about it in Pedagogy. Well, I mean, it's important. It's an important. Bit, yeah. Okay, I'll just say it now so Let's we can never speak of it again. <laughs> yeah. The Havelina head is introduced at the top of act one, basically at the, mm -hmm. when act one turns to act two, oh, yeah. we realize it's missing. Yeah. And in the top of act three, he finds yeah. it again it's, and replaces it. it. Yeah. It's so just it's, a nice little it's literally there. just a little marker of like one, two, three, uh, thesis, 
uh, antithesis. antithesis it's synthesis. literally, yeah. if you notice, it's literally uh, not bookended, but trails of the sequences where he Royal decides I'm going to do a thing to try to get closer to my family. And then when he has his misstep, uh, yeah. of course, in the middle where he's like, oh, it didn't work. My tactic didn't work. Yeah, um, he is the Havelina. Yeah. So chapter five. Exactly. Royal and Ethel walking in the woods. Um, he says how much he's enjoyed himself and how he really is trying to be another great God, better they're man. Both so good. Yeah. And she says, I like, he says, uh, I, I failed them. You know, I failed them as a father or yes. it's nobody's fault. <laughs> I love that. That's his, that's his backup position or yeah. it's nobody's fault. That that'll work too. And she says, you know, the obvious question you kind of ask as the audience, because he's being nice now as an old yeah. man. So it's like, and we know he's lying about why death, didn't you so. give a damn about us, Royal? Why didn't you ever care? Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't know. I'm ashamed of myself. And that's right. all the answer we ever get. He was just was a bad father. He just was. I mean, he talks, he, he does talk, he elaborates a little bit more later, yeah. but we don't get a reason for it. It's not like he had some other thing going on. It's not on. like a secret Coke addiction or anything yeah, particular. Yeah. Um, he was just like and a I also, carouser. I also like during the scene, we just get the, at the end of the scene, Henry's just been watching from the trees, holding groceries for no <laughs> reason. Right, right, right. Which leads to a, a confrontation finally between Henry and Royal, mm -hmm. uh, in which- <laughs> More racism. Royal <laughs> is, uh, explicitly racist to him. He calls him Coltrane, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of just says like, jive and shit. Yeah. yeah. Says jive Turkey and lay it on me, man. It like code switching in order to be like, let's talk. Let's fight black talk now. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty and he's, cringy. He's trying to get him to fight. Yeah. Escalates into a fight. They start screaming. Ethel walks in, pulls them apart. Henry calls about the fake doctor. Oh, so Henry's deduced the whole thing, calls the fake doctor, proves it's all yeah. fake, uh, and reveals that his pills that he's been taking for his cancer are Tic Tacs, and that he eats three cheeseburgers every day, even though he claims to and have we, stomach cancer. We know this because uh, we find out that Henry himself is a widower, uh, and his wife had stomach cancer, so he knows what it looks like, and it doesn't look like this. Right. Um, asks Pagoda, how much is he paying you? Pagoda says, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, they, you know, call the whole family and basically for a family meeting and reveal all this in Royal's room, Richie Royal and Margot watch Eli on TV. Oh, oh, when they bust in, they're watching Eli on TV, getting interviewed. Right. And, uh, comes and in and he exposes them. And I, I just bring this up because, so this is just what's on in the background. It's not that important to the plot action, but fans of Royal Tenenbaums and us will know. There's a very important line here, which is the moment when they ask <laughs> wild cat. <laughs> no, just when they, when they ask Eli in the interview about his book and he says, uh, wild cat, wild cat poop. But that's, what's crazy is I was watching with subtitles this time and I never realized the name of the book is wild cat in. So he actually says wild cat, wild cat, poo, C A T T I N apostrophe, wild cat. Wildcat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway, he's on mescaline. They expose yeah. <laughs> they expose Royal. Royal says, Oh shit, man. And then Pagoda says, Oh shit, man. <laughs> Which I enjoy. Um, because there's the a very important moment when he says, I know I'm gonna be the bad guy on this one, Gene Hackman. I know I'm gonna be the bad guy on this one, but I just want to say that the last six days have probably been the best six days of my whole life. 
And the narrator says, immediately after making this statement, Royal realized that it was true. But they kick him out nevertheless. Um, and on his way out, he says some shitty stuff to Ethel. He goes like, plus, I only really came back because I was broke and I got kicked out of my hotel room. And she says, you're a bastard. And you sort of get the impression that that's his psychological model, right? If if he's going to go down, may as well burn it all. So like on his way out, he says something mean, almost for no reason, almost as like a psychological reflex. Um, but they mm-hmm. kick him out. He tells Chaz, take it easy on those boys. I don't want this to happen to you, meaning I don't want you to be alienated like I am from you now. Um, He tells Richie, I feel like a different person after my near-death experience. Richie points out, you were never dying. And he says, I know, but I'm going to live now. Um, Finally says Mm -hmm. to Margot, by the way, Henry's not your father. And she says, neither are you. So he has a little one-off with each of the kids. Then Pagoda stabs him. And he says, God damn it, that's the last time you stick a knife in me. And I got to say, Abe, in the theater, this slayed me. I laughed until I cried at this moment, the very first time. <laughs> Do you remember having any strong reaction to that, the stabbing? Uh, my interpretation was that it, when when a character like Royal Tenenbaum says something like that, mm-hmm. means that Pagoda, by the end of this film, is going to stab him again. So I, I laughed because I was like, I hope he finishes that. Doesn't turn out that way. But we do get the, uh, I do like the little connection of like, this is how he met Pagoda. They referenced earlier. Yeah. Pagoda initially stabbed, stabbed Royal him. the first time they met and has since been like, you know, they've been best buds. Uh, but it's like, that so it's an it's a nice little moment and I did did make me laugh. I just I wish there was a third beat, honestly. A third stab. It Chapter doesn't make six, sense in the movie as it is, but you know. Margot meets like with Eli in secret to break up. He says, I'm not in love with you anymore. She says, I didn't know you were in love with me. He says, mm-hmm. Let's not make this difficult. She says, Okay. Um mm-hmm. and he accuses her of being in love with Richie, which he says is sick and gross. And she says, Do you send my mother your clippings? Um, that's weird. She's like yeah. talking. Yeah. She basically belittles him for wanting to be a Tannenbaum and he belittles her for being in love with her brother. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a fit. So they're they're breaking up. We zoom and in. Just like in Bottle Rocket, mm-hmm. we have a zoom in private eyes. Snap private zoom. eyes eavesdropping in on the conversation. Suddenly a that's man right. with a microphone. Just like Bottle uh, Rocket. It's true. And he works for Raleigh and uh, Richie. Raleigh and He's Richie. the P.I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that cuts immediately to that. Once again, Wes Anderson doing this thing where it's all about the connective tissue. The cuts are almost always bump right up to the moment where you have your realization of like, who's that guy? Oh, that's the guy. It's like, it's, it's in a way stream of consciousness kind of reads like a book. Uh, anyway, the PI kind of reads her case file, which starts another montage, which is that she ran away when she was like 12 or so. And then it was just a series of men. Um, yeah, she has uh, and women. She ha- has an eclectic women, taste yeah. in sex partners and uh, goes around doing what she wants and writing plays. And now Richie knows that the woman he loves is, you know, sleeps around a lot. And this devastates him. 
And we get another very famous sequence set to a needle in the head. Before that, I do want to yeah. reference, because we have not mentioned once Dudley. in this podcast, <laughs> Dudley's there for some reason. And if you haven't followed, Dudley sure. is like the, the subject of Raleigh's like neuroscience uh, study and is key to, I mean, auxiliary to the arc for Raleigh, but he's just there and it's just funny. That's all. And it's like, I think that probably that moment is probably the best utilization if he's just there. I think in pedagogy, we can have a Dudley talk. Uh, oh, sure. Everyone rushes, or I'm sorry, uh, Richie shaves his head, looks in the mirror, says, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, and then cuts mm-hmm. his wrist right then. And I got to say, uh, it's partially the song. The Elliott Smith song is phenomenally powerful. But this is another moment that when I saw this in theaters, this devastated me just as hard as it's intended to. Like this really, this really is the one. On me. This is the one where it does work on me too. It's a very visceral scene. It's not just the music, it's the shots. Uh, it's and an effective sequence all the way to all the cars driving to the recovery room. Yes. Like he does a typical thing where Anderson doesn't do all the time where he kind of like put, he, he puts the camera in motion. That's what uh, I noted and, is I didn't yeah. actually cry until every, until the family rushed to the room, to him. It wasn't and the act itself. It's yeah. the love that comes in the wake of it. And it's the fact that they're in silence and they're panicking and they're saying, go here, go here. Cause they're all driving. And the they're not tweets. They're like all that cut yeah. through all that shit are someone's in right. real danger. Yeah. And I think Anderson knew to keep that in silence mm-hmm. because it's not in the, it's not a part of the movie, but it is a part of life, which is something we'll talk about later. Of One of the things I have is a ding against this movie, but it really does make for an effective sequence here. But also very, very realistic and unlike film grammar, at least script writing rules to have him say, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, then kill himself then, now. But it's really realistic. I like that. Because you I would like be like, well, if I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, may as well. F- yeah, fuck it. Let's yeah, exactly. It. You can yeah. see the thoughts in his head going like, well, I've already made the decision. What's stopping me? There's yeah. a razor right here. Yeah. yeah. Um. So he wakes up. We get a great, hilarious, you know, you got to cut through the sadness with another dry, you know, uh, a banding about of dry wit. So we have... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the revelation note. that he wrote a suicide note right after he woke up. So after he realized he wasn't going to die, he woke up in the hospital, he wrote a suicide note and he says that kind of explains it all. And uh, Chaz says, so can we read it then? No. Can you paraphrase it for us? I don't think so. Is it dark? Of course it's dark. It's a suicide, <laughs> suicide note. note. Yeah, that's the line I wrote down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Raleigh Tamargo has has it out with her at this moment. He lets it rip. Yeah, you cuckolded me. I want to talk about this <laughs> scene a little bit. You've made cuckold of me many times yeah. over. <laughs> and he blames her for Richie's suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then he asks for a smoke and leaves. Uh, that is what happens. I do like we mentioned the cigarette. This is the moment where he like doesn't understand how to smoke a cigarette. It's very funny. Uh, it's very sweet. But here's the thing on the Margot Raleigh scene. There's like two. I think there's only actually one line that's in voiceover to help us understand what Margot is thinking. I think it's it's very strange. And I think it was put in an editing for fear that people wouldn't understand the complexity of what's going on. She asks, what's he talking about when Raleigh says you almost killed your poor brother? Uh, and then Murray says, or uh, Raleigh says, he doesn't think. He literally says, it, uh, B- uh, Bill Murray says it with his like his mouth. She's bawling Eli Cash. Yeah. And I don't understand what's going on here. It's the only time we're ever in the head of a person. 
which is the Margot line. And Raleigh's line kind of feels like that should be in voiceover because he says that she's bawling, not you're bawling. Mm-hmm. That it's a very off. Like I don't know what's going on in that scene, and I would love if someone could explain to me exactly. You why suspect two lines. it was added in post by someone. Who I, wasn't I in one case. About in clarity. one case, I think it was a little bit, and but it, that's also weird because it doesn't actually add clarity. He, mm-hmm. it, she just goes, "What's he talking about?" Yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. I would love if someone smarter than me could say. This is what Wes Anderson well, is thinking. This doesn't prove that I'm smarter than you. In fact, just the opposite. But I must say, it did provide clarity because that is the moment where I like I didn't realize that she slept with Eli until oh, really? this viewing oh. and that moment. Oh man, I got okay. Yeah. That's something I, mean, I, I thought... didn't pick up on. I thought he was just doing drugs with her when he jumped out the window. Oh yeah. no, no. Like in the opening 15 minute montage, the child actor of Eli is actually very good. He's watching Margot across the street. It's very clear. It zooms from her window to his window and he's just captivated on it. So it's like right from the jump, Eli is all about Margot. Well, Richie goes home from the hospital against the wishes of the hospital. You know, he just bounces, Mm -hmm. Uh, goes to his tent. He finds Margot there playing records he shows her his stitches. They have it out. They both admit they love each other. They kiss. Um, she says, I think we're just going to have to be secretly in love with each other and leave it at that, Richie, um, uh, because yep. of the whole family angle. Chapter seven. Chapter seven. They hang the javelina back up. So, you know, it's act three. Uh, mm-hmm. Richie goes to the hotel to see Royal, asks his advice about what to do about the Margot situation and admits he loves her. And... Uh, Royal's advice is, quote, I don't know. Maybe it works. What the hell? Why not? You love each other. No one knows what's going to happen. Ah, don't listen to me. I never understood any of this. <laughs> so uh, uh, actually, there's more. I wish I could tell you what to do, he but I just can't. Yeah, yeah. Real regret in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you still consider me your father? I wish I had more to offer in that department. Uh, right. Blah, blah, blah. Then Mordecai returns, who is the Falcon that Richie released when he came home initially. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I also thought I wrote down this part. It should be Abe Nip. Am I right? <laughs> Abe Nip, like I'm like into the fa- the Luke the Luke Wilson Royal conversation. The oh yeah, do you still consider oh, yeah. me your father? Of course. I I wish I had yeah. more to offer. I know you wish you do. I don't there, blame you. She's a good looking girl and smart as a whip. <laughs> there's something about getting vindication and con like. Not hearing from your father that it's like it's one way, uh, the father expressing in some fashion, I don't know, don't listen to me, but also here's my advice is like it's a combination that shows that Royal really does regret it. And it also comes immediately after Richie explaining why he uh, choked at the tennis game, which yeah. we've seen in the past, Royal has wondered about uh, because Royal is active in Richie's life. He cares about the, the movements of his life, unlike Margot, unlike Chaz. And that's uh, that's just something that is like that's, yeah, daddy issue stuff. <laughs> it's yeah, great. It's good shit. They also uh, he says, there's one thing I want your help with. And they go to have an intervention for Eli because he's been on drugs the whole movie. And Eli says that he slept with Margot because he always wanted to be a Tannenbaum. And Royal says, me too, me too, which I think is a great interchange. Um, and another <laughs> great moment is af- they, you know, they say we care about you and you got to quit the drug thing. And he goes, 
I wish you did this for me when I was a kid. And he goes, well, you didn't have a drug problem then. Yeah. Again, Luke Wilson playing that like apathetic, like clueless. Just would have loved to have like the experience of an intervention. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he's secretly wise, you know. And then Uh, fucking dude. uh, Then Royal has the scene from the trailer that just sings, which is Royal trying to make it up to Margo by taking her to an ice cream parlor, (laughs) which is not her vibe at all. And Mm -hmm. saying basically the premise of the film which is almost the premise of America as a whole. (laughs) Can't someone be a shit their whole life and try to repair the damage? I think people want to hear that. (laughs) Exactly, dude. I think people want to hear that. Do they? I bet you don't even know my middle name. That's a trick question. You don't have a middle name. It's Helen. (laughs) It's Helen. Oh, that was my mother's name. I know. I know. No, it's great. It's great. Uh, That dialogue is fantastic Mm -hmm. because it exposes, again, the history of not really caring for Margo, but also expresses uh, a genuine... Yeah, attempt to and in fact we see him even when no one's watching he's trying because we see that he takes time out of his day to go to rachel's grave and lay roses at her grave and we haven't mentioned that he got a job as an elevator man in the the hotel hotel that he got kicked out of so like he and he yeah he there he actually uh says to richie i'm just hoping someone will notice which is you know kind of telling on yourself but at the same time well duh isn't that what was hilarious little detail i never noticed until this time is that In the tiny shot where he's standing at Rachel's grave, he's impatiently checking his watch. Like, I wonder how long I have to stand here. Yeah. Um, And then to top it all off, he serves his wife with divorce papers and he tells Ethelene. He's nice. Henry is a good guy. You guys should get married. He gets it now. And And Henry's doesn't forgive will you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and he says he gets it now. Henry's everything I'm not. Yep. Uh, I think that's a nice little thing. Chapter eight, we're finally at the climax. Um the wedding, the wedding. of Ethel and Henry, but more shit is about to go down because it's the climax. So we find out that Henry is also a widower, and he and Chaz bond over it, and we realize very quickly that Henry is going to be the father figure that Chaz never had. And I'm choking up right now. <laughs> <laughs> um the dude and this is where i think wes actually shines as a director of human beings like a director of people because we've and someone who thinks through his whole film in a very omniscient way um we've already established this thing where this movie does this trick where kids imitate adults in their blocking and it's played as cute and yes. the main one being when Ben Stiller lies with his hands behind his head on the floor, yeah. Ari gets down on the floor and lies with his hands behind his head. That's a beautiful moment. Yeah. Well, that is a setup for this moment. And I think that mm-hmm. makes it so smart and beautiful is Stiller comes into the room and instinctively starts copying Henry. So already casting him yes. physically as a father figure. And then Henry, who I'll remind you, is in the middle of his wet getting ready for his wedding day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm actually choking up. I think it's so sweet. He's in the middle of getting ready for his wedding day. And this is his Tiny's, betrothed Tiny's kids. Tiny. And yeah. he says, you know, I'm a widower. And he stops and takes the time out of the wedding to turn yeah, to him Chaz. and put his hand on his shoulder and look in his eyes and goes, Oh, I know that, Chaz. I know that. And you're like, we're going to talk about this later. You know, it's such a good moment. Mm, Delicious. Yeah. It shows I've been in your life a lot longer than you think I have. Yeah. And we can bond over that. Yeah. 
which is something that uh, Chaz has never gotten from a father figure. You know, he's never gotten the time of day. He's never had someone say, here's, I care about what you care about. Right. And that's what he's starved for. Oh, that's good. Boom, Eli crashes the car into the front of the house. <laughs> In full face makeup. In full racist, appropriate face makeup. Almost killing Chaz's kids. Uh, yeah. Royal, actually, in a split second, it's just revealed. But he says, like, look out. And then we see we, it's revealed that Royal actually saved them. Uh, but, you know, the, the dog died. They hit Buckley. <laughs> so um, Buckley's gone. And then a chase ensues where Chaz ooh, chases set Eli. Set sloppy he, jazz drums. Mm. Yeah. Mm, that's that's how you do a chase for comedy, baby. Pushes <laughs> a priest fully down the stairs, like yeah, full on yeah, down yeah, the yeah, stairs. Yeah. He loses his mind. He elbows yeah. Richie in the eye, almost blinding him. And he throws Eli over a wall, uh, which is just a great <laughs> like a wrestling how Eli. Yeah. It's also great how Eli deals with the problem. Just get it out of here. It's also <laughs> you know? great that he lands in a Zen garden and is immediately mm. calm. Like it's over now. The fight that is, is over. That is all intentional. Because we're in a Zen that garden. Yeah. All intentional. Um, cut. I need help. Yeah. So do I. I need help. Yeah. So do I. Um, Royal says uh, to Henry, I've always been considered an asshole for as long as I can remember. It's just kind of my style. <laughs> Henry says, I don't think you're an asshole. I just think you're kind of a son of a bitch. And they're like, that's good. That's as good as we're going to do. And then uh, the cops come. Eli admits everything to the police. He's going to go to rehab. He'll be in trouble. But right. Life will go on for him. Um, right. Of course, the cops are very nice to him because he's a white guy dressed in appropriate face paint. <laughs> he's famous. No threat yeah. there. Um, everyone has fun playing with the fire engine for some reason, which I thought was a weak excuse to stage everyone in a very Last Supper kind of way. I did like the Dalmatian thing, though. I guess. I just thought this one staging piece was a little forced, where it's like, now let's okay. place them all around the fire truck. Yeah, anyway, okay. everyone does a little last epilogue scene expressing their character. It almost reminded me of that Simpsons episode that ends with everyone saying their catchphrase. It literally pans across and everyone gets like a one-liner where it's like, don't forget, this is what yeah. I'm all about. Richie's teaching tennis, Margo's writing yeah. again, Ethel and Henry get married, Ra uh, Raleigh and Dudley go on a lecture tour promoting a new book. Uh, Royal Ra buys and him a new ends, dog. It ends with Royal has a heart attack in that montage, right? That's right. Uh, and they have a funeral at dusk and they salute him by firing BB guns into the air. And his gravestone reads, Royal Tannenbaum died tragically <laughs> rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. Then it ramps to slow-mo. <laughs> Hey, it isn't a Wes Anderson movie if the last shot of the movie isn't ramping to slow, to slow mo. As everyone leaves the frame and we end and the music takes us away. And it is such good music and such a good soundtrack that I think that's I mean, he deals serious damage just through selecting good, good ass songs. Pedagogy. Pedagogy, we're there. We made it. I have one I, massive thesis that would be a full-on cracked article if we were still at cracked. Me with should I hit you with that first? All right, we'll tackle that. Shit. Um, this is so structurally arrested development that I never noticed oh, before. Yeah. Literally oh, yeah. to the point that like Chaz is Job, uh, Margot is Portia oh, de Rossi. Right. <laughs> Fucking Bill Murray as Raleigh uh, is totally Tobias Funke. 
It is this Chaz is Michael. Dude, Jeffrey Tambor, like dad is a crazy schemer who lives in the attic. Everything is the fucking it's arrested oh my development. God. Even and the moment where even the sweet moment of Alec Baldwin saying him going, uh, these are the best six days of my life. And the narrator says that at that moment he realized it was true. That is an arrested that development a, joke. That's an arrested development <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just uh, uh, there's actually uh there was uh, I read about mm-hmm. there was actually Mitch, Her- Mitch Mitchell Hurwitz who created arrested development said that he watched Royal Tenenbaums and was like, "Well, fuck, I can't make my arrested development idea." And then over the span really? of the year it was like over the span of the year it was like, "Ah, I, I bet I could." <laughs> wow, because it yeah. also is loosely based on soap the old billy crystal show and i can see those connections because they're very intentional well i I mean here's the thing i i started this podcast talking about like the you know like the magnificent ambersons and franny and zoe all this stuff it's like there is a format somewhat to the scripting of a family that has many talents and a you know or even just a rich family and we inspect their rich dysfunctional uh, family there's dysfunction and so Mm -hmm. it's all kind of coming from the same place so yes soap was kind of coming from that as well uh i'm pretty sure that's so it's like influences of influences affecting people at a certain certain moment it's like playing telephone right right and in fact i just read on some site and I didn't realize that yeah the the family explicitly is based on the glass family who are a family that JD Salinger right. used repeatedly as characters in his stories. Right. So no yeah, I did not know that. Family. That's fascinating. Why do you think that is an enduring setup? Like why do we care about because it's rich about- families having many talents but being deep down well, why are we interested now. in Charles Charles Dickens shit, right? It's seeing the other half living and it's seen it's trying to appeal to everyone is everyone shares in a very human thing and it's called suffering. And uh the uniqueness of the suffering uh is definitely defined by your like class system or you know in other cases, you know, like some other affectation of society. But um ultimately it's trying to appeal right to the concept of this is the unique problems of the rich. They're they have such high standards put upon the children that they have no actual interaction. They have no actual love. Whereas, you know, a middle class family or a lower class family wouldn't necessarily have that problem by design because the expectations of excellence are not so high. So I think that these forms start to, uh, you know, kind of formulate because it comes from a certain place and that grief is how you kind of examine it. Right. I don't know. That would be my answer. Huh. It is interesting that. Most of the stories I can think about in this vein, though, or in this mold are fully satirical meaning Mm -hmm. arrested development is about a bunch of irredeemable assholes other than the relationship between michael and because rich people don't like what are these i mean these problems are real no 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 no, but that's what i'm saying is tannenbaums is feel good by the end like it's satirical though mm -hmm. you aren't you're supposed to laugh at the fact of how like up their own ass they are they but are you supposed to think plays and stuff. I, I would argue that throughout Royal Tannenbaums by the end, it legitimately is rooting for these people to find safety, oh, success, yeah. happiness and love. And I'm just saying that's different than most. Most of these are like, look at these rich people like Knives Out. 
look at these rich people. Yeah. The one middle class person that we identify with is good. All the rich people are crazy assholes. Oh, I think I it's hope they become more recently in vogue to be to make it straight up satire. Uh, Succession is another one that's on TV right now that's doing that as a dark kind of comedy. You can also like where it comes from. Let's take another Salinger thing like Holden Caulfield, right? Catcher in the Rye. You can think that he's a dumb dumb and he sucks but at the same time you can actually have catharsis with the character it doesn't mean that his angst isn't real so you can have deep connections with dummies or with people who don't deserve it necessarily that's kind of the trick that's what they're trying to do when they say rich person has a problem most of us raise our hands and go well who cares right. and that's right but like doesn't mean that suicide isn't or it doesn't mean a rich person do. doesn't have a problem. And I agree. Yeah. I guess I'm just saying, and part of it is the Richard Corey effect. Aha, Paul Simon reference, which is ah. a famous poem slash song about- And he went home and shot himself. A rich guy who kills himself anyway. It, that's really what it boils down to. Oh, he's rich, yeah. but he killed himself. It's a great story. And uh, so I would say that's another aspect of these tales is they show us that suffering, don't worry, rich people also suffer. You don't have to be that jealous. Or like, mm -hmm. just because they're rich doesn't mean they're happy. Um, and I think, yeah, the comedy comes from the lack of sympathy, but the catharsis comes from the appeals to the realness of it. And I think you're right. This movie does kind of land on the realness in the end because Wes Anderson does make comedy. But do they not bleed or do they not love? Is it not exactly? Real? Yeah. But I would say it, it would be a stretch to say that he's not lampooning them the whole time. I think he's lampooning all of these things. I, like he, that's yeah. why Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, they're all made to be fools, right? Are we not supposed to laugh at their insane? I do think we laugh at them. I just think that Anderson is legitimately sympathetic to them in Tannenbaums. I th the film seems sympathetic to the family. That's one of my beefs with it. A little in bit. a way that it's, I was general, about to say, do that. I yeah. actually think some people with through a modern sensibility, you know, with a modern sensibility would say, why are we so sympathetic to them um, when they don't necessarily, there's no reason to be, or like, why is it Royal's story per se? But uh, it works on me. I'm still, I fall under its spell. I, I'm still into it. I'm less interested as we go on about that conversation, just because it's like, yeah, you can have a different story with that as well. This one, it just happens to be one about rich people. But you know what I'm saying? There's, I think nowadays there does, there is some classism in the sense of like, I, and I understand where this comes from. People have, some people have a bad reaction to any story that's about rich people's problems. Cause mm -hmm. it's like, why? Who cares? Like you just said, you kind of elucidated the reaction that you'll get from some people is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, who cares about that? The movie should be about someone in actual dire straits. Um, Honestly, mm -hmm. my, my bigger beef, not because I think you were, everything that you said is true. And I, I, I love to death that you were affected so much by this. The thing where it stops for me is like, keep on that, like train of thought. And then you, you actually ask the question, how does like Anderson really approach like the resolution and what i mean by that is how does he approach healing uh and in all of his films he always just leaves it as a work in progress which is fine you don't have to have a movie that has to have big revelations about healing or find cardinal north in terms of uh you know like what you want to say about committing suicide i think anderson does a lot 
of taking dysfunction and using it as a, like a form of charm or in the case of like I mentioned the comedian suicide like he leaves it as a character who successfully garners attention from someone he loves by committing suicide I'm not saying that that's not something that people don't do by attempting but what is yeah. but what is Anderson truly um, saying about I don't think he's here. saying the problematic thing that you're implying that he might be saying no, and, and not, I don't even think you're I don't trying. think he's being problematic yeah you don't believe yeah. that either I know but the closest he gets to an answer is that Mordecai he Richie lets Mordecai as Falcon free in act one in act two mm -hmm. when Richie goes to see Eli to confront him at his front door he hears a falcon cry and he looks up in the sky and it, you assume it's Mordecai. And then in act three, Mordecai returns and he has many more white feathers now. And they're on the roof talking about it, Richie and Margot and Richie and Margot says, or Richie says, um, he has way more white feathers around his neck now. Maybe he had a traumatic experience. And Margot says, I'm sure he'll get over it. Uh, I think that's the answer. I think that's the intended resonant line. And I'm saying <laughs> you could find that answer not satisfactory, but it's as simple a theme as we are all shaped by our trauma. And you want to hear, oh man, we, you're totally right. It is. We're all shaped by our trauma. Our trauma creates us and, and is a part of who we are and it's woven into our bones. You want to hear a ridiculous and true story about that? Sure. Did you know that the original Hawk that they mm -hmm. shot uh, Act One with the mm -hmm. the Mordecai was kidnapped at some <gasps> point during the shooting of the movie and held for ransom, which itself sounds like a Wes Anderson movie. Mm -hmm. This is all true. The production could not wait for the bird to be returned, so they actually just got a different Falcon. So the lines about the white feathers and the fact that it's a different bird were added <gasps> on really? the fly. But that yeah. feels like the sum up line to me. That's like this well, is the moral of the movie. I think it's because they know line. what they want to say, and they're like taking advantage. Of it. I think sure. it's really smart. I think he also says exactly what you say uh, in other ways. I think it's just allegorical with Mordecai, and it's. I think that's where he really ex the 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 movie expresses it the best. But I'd also say that there's a there's several places that that occurs. You know when you when you just look at how uh, the the Chaz arc itself, like you. you you can only take from that really that like trauma begets trauma unless you really address, you know, uh, the, the dysfunction to, to really address the grief that's there. If you don't address it, you're just going to, or another one is, uh, with the Chaz arc is when one of my favorite lines is when Royal comes down and says like, I don't want you to have to go through this. Yeah. And it really like fucks up Chaz, right? Because he, doesn't want to admit to it, but he understands that he is probably being too hard on his uh, children mm -hmm. and they're someday might turn him away at the door. He doesn't want that. He doesn't think that that's true. He's nothing like his father, but it's something that really eats at him. And it's I think that that is exactly the kind of like trauma begets trauma in that way, unless it's actually addressed. Well, there's also the radical abandonment of resentment, like the idea that it can turn on a moment and that it can be a free will choice in the sense of mm. I think there's something in the film and in the story about parents calcifying into who they are and it's on you whether it's fair or not. And spoiler alert, it's not fair. It's on you to just accept them as they are because 
Like Royal's never going to go right. back in the past and change. Royal can never, you know what I mean? It's unforgivable in the or it's, it's un it's un undoable. But, uh, right. if you want a relationship with him now, it's this radical acceptance and forgiveness that you have to be a part of that he says, and it sounds so dumb when you say it, can't a person be a shit their whole life and then try to make up for it. Um, yeah. We all kind of do want that or hope that some that we could somehow find our way back to being loved, even if we fucked up royally. Someone would want to do us that kindness, right? You know, um, and yet it's such an absurd ask that someone forgive you after you did something bad, <laughs> you know, when you think of it in a philosophical way. I, I don't think it is an absurd ask if there is actually some form of love there. The problem is that Royal has distanced himself to such an extent that there wasn't He love. spent a long time making them seem, feel unloved. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. With love, it kind of blossoms from just a strand, and that strand was Richie. He got Richie to get him in, and then getting him in got him to like see what the problem was and then seeing what the problem was gave him solutions for how to actually solve it. And then we get to, you know, his death. And he at least did humble himself to some degree. Cause like you can't just forgive for no reason. He, he went through his trial by fire and, and it signed never really, the divorce papers, et cetera. It didn't truly resolved. I don't think his family at the end thought he was a good guy. Like the what? He no, wished. no, no. It lands but in the middle. But we do yeah. get Chas looking at him in the ambulance, and and the narrated line where it's like he was the only one who saw his father die, and we see him crying in that moment. Mm-hmm. He's sad his father died. That's that's a huge difference from, you know, Chas at the beginning. Whoa! Ho ho ho! Yeah. Oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I'm so proud of you all. Oh ho ho! Okay. <laughs> I think it's interesting that because another popular structural form is now popularized as the Dan Harmon story circle, but believe it or not, that form existed Uh. long before Dan Harmon popularized (laughs) it. But, uh, you know, the want, need, go, find, get, return, changed, whatever thing. And it breaks down into eight sequences. And there's a lot of screenplays that are written in the eight sequence format. And I just think it's very interesting that this has exactly eight chapters and they comport roughly to the eight sequences it's very structurally sound, uh, even though it is technically non-traditional. It, if you know what I mean, because like well, you mentioned, it has that it has that duality of storyline. I don't know about that. It has that duality yeah. of storyline, like Full Metal Jacket does. So it feels to me like you took all the parts that make a house. And like you put the load bearing walls in the place that they normally go, and then you improvised all the stuff all around it. Or the stuff all yeah. around it is more experimental well, structurally. Here's mm, here's the problem because I kind of disagree with that, but like I think it's it's not a structural problem. The more I think about it, it's like what he wants the scenes to be talking about. Like this conversation started with us discussing kind of like the fact that our it, within 15 minutes we know technically, even if we haven't been like reminded of it in 15 minutes, which typically movies do remind you at like 25 minutes and 35 minutes and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, of what all of the characters deals are, what the drama is between them. And they just basically stay pat that whole time. So when we talk about structure, what I think we need to really talk about is what's load bearing to the story. And all of the machinations of the plot in this film are not structurally sound. Things don't think people move in spaces and discuss things, but nothing changes other than 
uh, the plot with the fact that uh, Royal um, yeah, that's is counts. faking. No, that's what I'm saying is you can pull. It doesn't the, really count. You can absolutely follow the thread of a traditional three act structure through. A man wants to get his family back together, so he cooks up the scheme of pretending he has cancer. He plays that out for a while. Then it gets exposed. Then he really humbles himself after a dark night of the but soul. No and then his family uh, re-embraces him to some limited degree. That is a, I think you need ABC, that is a one, two, three, wham, bam. Yeah, yeah. You, you can, no, you're absolutely right. You can go through those motions, but if there's no stakes to the story, it doesn't really matter. The stake is he familial just go- harmony. No, well, at the end it is, and I think that he does earn that, but it's like it takes us a lot of time to get there structurally. If you think about it in terms of just the the time in the movie, no real movement is made until uh, Royal decides to take the job as a elevator man, and then really only oh, man, later I really when disagree. he serves the divorce papers. Yeah, he's all... Every time no, his- he confides in someone, it's always Luke Wilson. He always treats Chaz the same until the end. Margot, he never thinks about it at all. These are all his flaws. What you're talking about is the relationships change. don't shift, but that doesn't mean it doesn't- But that's what drama is. But it's not what structure is. Structure is just a, an agreed upon sequence of ups and downs in fortune that we all like, where there's a down right before the up at the end. And I'm saying Royal, if you consider Royal the main character- he goes through that. And the B plot is the Margot and Richie stuff. But the whole point of structure. Otherwise, why even care about what things look like from afar? The whole point of structure is these things are load bearing. They matter. They change people. They have new wants right. and new needs. And his they need comes from tactics. the fact that he finds out that his wife is getting remarried and his immediate need is to stop the wedding. And then he finds out, as is a common tactic in screenwriting, by the end of the movie, that that's not really what he needs. What he needs is forgiveness. It's not what he thought he needed. But we don't see any, like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's a little too far because he just kind of yada yada us to that. We don't see a scene where he actually feels that. He just say, oh, yes, understood. Okay, next scene. Now I will be better. It's these kind of things that make it feel like they're formless and like separate me from the movie. I don't know. What I guess I'm just trying to say when I mean like load bearing is it really only means that like I want people to change in the act two. In the bulk of your movie, like when when you make a decision, it causes people to do other stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like there's not enough of that, I guess. I, I guess think, that's all I'm really saying. I think it's a spectrum because I think there are changes that are very minute that for me registered as enough of a change. So for an example would be Margot lived with Raleigh, Raleigh her husband. Now mm-hmm. she doesn't. So her circumstances changed. You're right in saying it doesn't really seem to affect her or her way she speaks or her mood or Raleigh's mood or way he speaks or anything. Yeah. That's true. But I'm just saying it's technically the circumstances changed around them, so to speak. That's true. That's true. And so I shouldn't like come down as hard on that. (laughs) So, but like (laughs) it does bother me. I want every, like when we talk about this stuff, I would, I do want it to be like, okay, so what do you have to say about it? And it's just like, it it does feel like it falls flat for me a little bit. That's all. Well, it saves its two big traditional swings for the end for sure, which would be the divorce the divorce papers and the suicide attempt you're like these are traditional interchanges that would happen in any movie (laughs) in fact if there's any takeaway from this is that like the absolute efficiency of those like first 20 minutes and that last 20 minutes 
are impeccable. Like he is so good at like oh, saying yeah, something very complex in a very resolves it in a very effective way. Um, and there's stuff in the middle. There's, you know, obviously we have Luke Wilson's or like we have Richie's, you know, suicide attempt. There's a lot of stuff going on in terms of, uh, there, there's acting, there's acting upon people and people's, uh, resistance to it or like going along with it. Like there's a lot of change, a lot of tactic change there. Eli um, and Margo get together and break up. Although both things are almost handled off camera. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I just, I find that like, it would be more interesting if Chaz, like with that whole character, like we, he knew more early what the problem was. Both people, both him and Royal were able to like, kind of come to a head sooner uh mm -hmm. though it is very effective i mean one of the best moments we mentioned earlier ben stiller like kind of stealing the show in this mm -hmm. re review uh is like uh he has that moment where he's given the dalmatian and then he, i've had a really hard year dad yeah and that is a great resolution all the parts are there i wanted it to happen sooner for some reason mm. maybe that's just me how do you do that is the segment we're in now um I was wondering about how they possibly did the BB effect in, embedded in the hand because it seems so realistic and I don't, I was actually trying to wrap my head around that effect. It's not an effect because they ripped it from real life. Owen mm -hmm. and Luke Wilson's brother, Andrew Wilson, had a BB lodged in his hand when he was shot by Owen Wilson. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so and cool. Uh, in a darker note of, of along the same lines, of course, it has been widely speculated that... Uh, their own struggles with Luke and Owen's own struggles with depression um, helped them work on the script and be a part of the film. And of course, Owen eventually uh, attempted suicide himself, which is, I don't know, listed as film trivia. So I brought it to the table to discuss. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that I knew- I do think, is I, or all I really mean to say by that is I do think it's a screenplay as someone who struggles with depression and in the past has had suicidal ideations, uh, periods of that. Um, feels really real in that department. It really checks out. <laughs> Resonated with this old bear. Yeah. 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 Hell yeah. The uh, only thing that I- like new would be an issue is that we know that Gene Hackman is kind of a prickly pear, kind of an asshole, especially Ooh, towards the good. end of his, I haven't heard, especially this. towards the end of his, uh, career. And this was like the, one of the last films he did because he was like, you know what? Uh, I will only do films if they're just really, really easy for me. Mm -hmm. he, he had a very low tolerance for physical production. So Wes Anderson decided, yeah, you should, uh, so you agree to do the movie if it, we make it really easy and the production made sure you're constantly comfortable. And so obviously, because when you're filming a movie, that just doesn't happen. Um, I mean, you can try and try and try, but something's going to come up. So uh, Gene Hackman basically one day when he had enough of it decided, uh, I'm going to just start insulting and verbally abusing Wes Anderson on set. And so he did. And Wes Anderson just kind of took it because that's what you do when you're a director is you just take it. Uh, but the cast kind of came together and uh, the person who was kind of, uh, according to, uh, you know, like the other cast members re recollection of these events, Bill Murray, Murray, who has had kind of a, 
he's been under fire recently himself for being an asshole, right? Well, I mean, not recently. I mean, yes, recently, but also he was like the Murricane on Groundhog mm-hmm. Day. He's known for also being, but he's also known for bear. randomly sticking up for people because he's just. But a weirdo. he's he stood up, and I thought one of the cool things, and Angelica Houston as well. Um, one cool thing I read is that they both, I think, or Bill Murray would show up on days that he wasn't shooting just to monitor Hackman's behavior. And any time that Hackman would be like, dig on Anderson, he would just like intervene and go like, no, 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 none of that. Because I think Bill Murray was the only one who had a kind of the cachet to, and Angelica Houston had the, were the only people who had the cachet to like talk to Gene Hackman. You know, imagine Luke Wilson trying to get in Gene Hackman's face, how that would go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just one of those things where it's just like, for me, out of that kind of uh, story, Wes Anderson, total pro. Yeah. And Gene Hackman, I get it, man. Sometimes you get senioritis. Uh, this happens with a lot of actors. Uh, I think so, some are less like popularized or like it doesn't become a story. But I know that like Bruce Willis and, you know, Harrison Ford and all, a lot of these, you know, types who are like had been in huge movies throughout their life and just know the, how movies are made. Uh, in and out they're just like i don't have any patience for all this nonsense and that just happens um well he did write the part with gene hackman in mind but i just want to say the other trivia bit that blows my mind is that when the other person they were considering is gene wilder uh the two genes but also aside from that i do think gene wilder would have been very very interesting in this he was pretty old at that he was pretty damn old but it would have been like a wild reinvention of him. wow yeah like what i mean god he would imagine being able to work with like him in his prime like he wilder 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 was the best um yeah the i think that I mean, there's a lot going on in terms of like. Can I read you a piece? Of, done. Can I read you a piece of trivia that I think sums sure. up why Wes Anderson sometimes rubs you the wrong way? Sure. <laughs> the whole this is. I think this speaks to the whole vibe of everything around Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson reportedly imagined the story that would later become the Royal Tenenbaums while listening to Ravel's string quartet in F, performed by the Britain Quartet. <laughs> Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. Good. Yeah. Good, dude. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that you can't get it from there. I just don't, I don't know that music. I, I think it's fascinating the idea that you would enshrine that into the trivia page. Although, of course, we know that's not Wes Anderson's put, doing. I know. Though. I know. I, you don't know who put that on there. But he probably said it in an interview. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he likes, I mean, if you watch Wes Anderson in interviews, he's there, he, he's, Kind of up his own ass, but there are moments that he actually is really down to earth. Like when people ask him real questions, he has really good answers. Mm -hmm. And it's usually about like, why did you do that? Or what drew you to this topic and stuff? He actually has a lot of really uh, eloquent ways of, you know, navigating that conversation. Um, But he, I think he understands who he is. I think he understands like what he represents to like the populace, which is he's the, he's Wes Anderson. He's the guy who does that, like, he does that twee stuff and he nails it, you know, like, and everyone knows that. So he makes these little fairy tales and these storybook tales that are essentially, uh, like he represents that for everybody. And so he plays up to it, I think. And, and I think that that's probably why he's talking about like, yes, I listened to Ravel and this is why, um, I think he's, there's a, there's an ounce of, uh, what's the word? 
there's an there's a little bit of pretend pre, uh, pretension that goes along with him that I think he plays up, and I don't think is really a part of him. Remember, this is a guy who you know came from Texas, so he he wants to live in New York, but like he grew up on not a farm, but like he grew up in Texas, man. Like he's not necessarily. Oh, I actually think he's more like bottle rocket than he is like royal tannenbaum i agree yeah i agree yeah and if you watch him in interview it seems that he's way. probably cool like guy. he plays it up yeah. <laughs> he plays it up and i think that that's why he can communicate with so many like heavy hitting actors like angelica mm-hmm. houston and gene hackman because it's like oh, i'm gonna tell you something that's true oh another story that i read is that angelica houston like all these things that wes anderson was bringing during the process of like forming the character of ethel like he would bring stuff like here's photos of my mother uh, who's an archaeologist, uh, like here's her at digs and stuff. And like, just so you can kind of like think about what I was thinking about for this character. And then he got to the point where he's like, and here's a locket I have. That was her locket. I think you should wear it for this, uh, this movie. And Angelica Houston straight up goes like, am That's I playing your mother? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that one? Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> like that's really easy. Like, no. <laughs> here's a skin suit uh, you should wear. It's someone's mother. I'm not going to say whose. And I think she's right to call that out. And yeah. I think he's and he's fine to deny it. Mm-hmm. But like, we know what it is. You know, I think you take things from everywhere. Uh, and I think he. this is a personal film for him somewhat. Uh, All my screenwriting yeah. is about your mother. But that's more of a sexual thing. Remember what I said about we're over, we're broken up. You're not helping. <laughs> Am I not helping? not helping? No. I just saw the Northman, so I'm going on Mother's on Day. Yeah. On Mother's Day, ah! <laughs> savaging the relationship. Um, I was yeah. trying to, I was trying to turn the ship by like bringing down the hammer on Wes, so then I would force you into an anti position of being pro Wes. <laughs> no, I mean, you're not going to give. Look, he does a lot of things right. That's all. Look. He also does things I don't. His love. initials That's are fine. WA, which spells the catchphrase of your favorite character. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think uh, that's enough about Royal Tenenbaums, but this was an interesting episode, man. I feel like there were moments where we just sort of got into a thing and we grappled and we could have had a ref tell us we needed to separate and come at it afresh, but then we had moments we were really singing. It was a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, man. I guess uneven is the word I'm searching for. This was an uneven episode, but that implies some good parts, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, we are the Andersons, so sometimes we, you know, sometimes we fight. Sometimes we 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 hug each other and make up. And, uh, you know, that will probably be closer to the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson we got lined up next for you. Which, is, which I believe which is Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk? Ooh, boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that'll be special. Um, Punch Drunk Love, we have cover before, correct? Yeah, we have. Okay. Frame Rate with Teresa Lee. Oh, yeah. So this will be just uh, solo dolo, but two of them. We, I mean, we did in that conversation, I encourage people to listen to it if you haven't. Mm. That's always great. But uh, it was more of a philosophical conversation about love. And I think we'll get into the nitty gritty of what makes that movie really feel anxious. And I mean, what it is, you know, just uh, that movie is emotionally kind of takes it out of you. Uh, But I am excited to get to the point where we're past everything that we've covered and we're seeing stuff we haven't even seen. Like, I haven't seen Phantom Thread. I haven't seen... Uh, French Dispatch, you know, so we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. 
Um, See you next month. Thanks for listening. Yeah, uh, if you feel like investigating some of our special bonus podcasts like Star Trek The Next Futurama, Spielboys, um, Director Piece Theater, I'll show you mine if you show me yours, Shooting Threes, head on over to patreon.com slash smallbeans where you can also find links to our merch store and tons of fun stuff. We do movie nights every Monday night if you want to hop onto our Discord server and find us there. Otherwise, you can follow me at Swaim underscore Corp. You can follow Abe at Abe the Mighty on Twitter. That's correct. Abe the Mighty, all one word, lowercase. All one word. The strongest way to spell it of all. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.